Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25. Tonight on The Readout. We had witnessed 9-11, the terrorist attack um, in New York and the plane that uh, crashed in Pennsylvania and the so-called plane that crashed into the Pentagon. It's odd. There's never any evidence shown for a plane in the Pentagon. After once going full Alex Jones, as you just heard, Marjorie Taylor Greene has been rewarded by Kevin McCarthy with a seat on the House Homeland Security Committee. Uh, Because, of course. Kevin's also playing with fire over America's debt ceiling after maxing out the national credit card when they were in charge. Republicans are threatening to simply stop paying America's bills. Plus, gun fanatics believe in starting them young, putting guns into the hands of children, even marketing assault style rifles for kids. And now in multiple instances, we're seeing the disastrous results of a sick, sick aspect of a uniquely American culture. But we begin the readout tonight with Republicans rewarding the far right contingent that they just can't seem to break free of. After Kevin McCarthy literally sold his soul and crawled on his belly to grasp the speaker's gavel, there was but one final task to complete his conversion into reek. If you're a Game of Thrones fan, otherwise do Google. Kevin and his fellow House leaders have now finalized their committee assignments, and we now know What MAGA Republican insurrectionists, conspiracy theorists, and other national security risks will be up to for the next two years? And it should terrify you. Four of the most extreme MAGA election deniers got seats on the House Oversight Committee. Marjorie Taylor Greene, Scott Perry, Lauren Boebert, and Paul Gosar. Now, just to refresh your memory, all four voted to overturn the 2020 election. Lauren Boebert is the barely reelected Colorado congresswoman who has made a show of avoiding the House magnetometers and made a video where she attacked Speaker Pelosi to the tune of gunshot noises. Subtle. Scott Perry is the House Freedom Caucus leader who tried to manipulate the Justice Department to overturn Trump's election loss and later asked for a pardon for his part in the sedition. Like Perry, Paul Gosar's fingerprints are all over January 6th. He helped to plan the rally before the siege on the Capitol. His own siblings have campaigned against him, even calling for him to be kicked out of Congress for being a traitor. In the last Congress, he was kicked off his committees and censured after tweeting a deranged fake anime fantasy where he murders Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez before taking a pair of knives to President Biden. Totally normal stuff. But Gosar also can't stop speaking at white nationalist conferences, which he did as recently as last year. 
as did Marjorie Taylor Greene at the far-right America First Political Action Conference, organized by white nationalist Trump dinner companion Nick Fuentes, where this happened. Can we give a round of applause for Russia? Yes. Absolutely, absolutely. In addition to the House Oversight Committee, Marjorie got a plum spot on the, and I wish I were making this up, Homeland Security Committee. So even though the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI have repeatedly said that white supremacists are the biggest domestic terrorism threat to our country, Kevin McCarthy gave someone who speaks at their conferences a seat on the committee that oversees Homeland Security. But Marjorie Greene doesn't just pal around with threats to national security. She is a security threat herself. Recall this from her pre-Congress days as a QAnon troll. You are using your lobby and the money behind it and the kids to try to take away my Second Amendment rights. You don't have anything to say for yourself? He's a coward. He can't say one word because he can't defend his stance because there is no defense for taking away guns. Harassing Parkland school shooting survivor David Hogg was one of the many things that got her kicked off her committees in the last Congress. But that's water under the bridge now that she's one of Kevin McCarthy's biggest backers. And it's what she's done and said since being in Congress. That's what makes her appointment the most alarming. Cassidy Hutchinson told the January 6th committee that Green bragged about the number of her QAnon follower constituents who were in Washington on the 6th to back Trump's attempts to stay in office. And last month, Green spoke at the New York Young Republicans Conference, where the group's president declared total war on their perceived enemies while trotting out a who's who of white nationalists. Then January 6th happens, and next thing you know, I organized the whole thing along with Steve Bannon here. And I want to tell you something, if Steve Bannon and I had organized that, we would have won. Not to mention, it would have been armed. Joining me now is Charles Blow, New York Times columnist and MSNBC political analyst and former Republican Congressman Francis Rooney of Florida. Charles Blow, this is the completion of the insurrection. This is as if Jefferson Davis, you know, was made chairman of, uh, you know, of the Senate Oversight Committee or or placed in in charge of the United States Senate or the House. I mean, this is placing literally uh, the Confederates in charge of the Union. Your thoughts on these developments? You're, you're right, uh, and I am no uh, fan of Jefferson Davis, but Marjorie Taylor Greene is no Jefferson Davis. I mean, Marjorie <laughs> Taylor Greene is just kind of a hollow shell of a person who believes and actually is correct in believing that theatrics get her attention and attention makes her money and money makes her powerful within her party. And so she's a stunt queen, and so that's what she does. Uh, but this is, as you said, part of the hostage taking of the Republican Party and McCarthy. You had one group of extremists who held up the vote and one group of extremists who supported uh, McCarthy in his efforts. Marjorie Taylor Greene had one who supported him, but they were all taking him hostage. And this is part of the ransom. He has to reward them and he has to play to them. And this is why we now have, are going to have, 
a Congress that barely functions. If you have people who do not believe in democracy, in this democracy, and have basically put that on the record that they don't by their actions and by the positions that they've taken, you cannot have a functioning democracy that works underneath those people. It, you know, it, Congressman Rooney, you know, it's, I'm looking here at the full list of the Republican Oversight Committee that will be um, Jim Jordan's uh, fiefdom. I mean, the list is, is is some of the most extreme people in the United States House of Representatives. Andy Biggs is on this list. He's somebody who Ali Alexander, one of the planners of the events before the Capitol siege, said was on his team, helping him to plan everything. These are insurrectionists, extremists, people who asked for pardons. This is the most reckless list ever, and they're the ones that are going to be doing oversight. And Marjorie Green, to the point Charles Blow made, you know, she's a stunt queen. You know, before she was in Congress, she was literally outside of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's door at, in Congress, harassing her and screaming into the little vent. And yet, there is one thing she said that I think is true. She tweeted, we're not the fringe, we're the majority. She said, These, there are a lot of people that need to hear this. We, she calls herself conservatives in the House aren't the fringe. We actually represent the base of Republican voters, which is approximately 70%. When the party learns to represent conservative Americans, we'll never lose again. We'll never lose again because, as she said, they'll just basically overthrow the government if they seem to lose. But unfortunately, I think she's right. Kevin McCarthy is presiding over a party where a lot of people are Marjorie Taylor Greene. Well, first of all, the majority of Americans are not going to let these kooks take over the government, no matter what they may say or think. What I'm really worried about is what this says about Republicans, who uh, are much, by, by and large, much more reasonable than this fringe that Kevin is rewarding. I think that you said it perfectly that he is bound by all these promises he made to succeed in his own ambition. It's kind of like the world. It's kind of like Ulysses going up the Straits of Messina and being surrounded by the whirlpool of Charybdis and the six-headed monster of Scylla, and they're pulling at him each way. And what's he going to do? And and he's lowering our brand at every step by rewarding these people. I mean, you got a fraud and a crook, Santos. You got this maniac lady, uh, total. Uh, disreputable person, and now he's rewarding her just because she came over to his side. And, and it kind of really galls me about Gozar because they wouldn't let me on the Natural Resources Committee because they said I voted like a Democrat because I introduced a carbon tax, which every Fortune 500 CEO supports as a responsible way to drive coal out of the energy equation. The thing is, is that they're not only, to your point, uh, you know, infecting these committees with the kooks. She's on Homeland Security, Marjorie Green, And you mentioned Santos. I mean, Homeland Security. This is a woman who herself is a threat to our Homeland Security, gets to be on the Homeland Security Committee. And you mentioned um, Santos. Yeah, yeah, you would think she wouldn't have enough of a clearance to be on that committee, given her Correct. past acts. But. But, and, exactly. And, Charles, that means she's going to have access to national security information. We could be in a situation where people like this, people like Andy Biggs, people like Scott Perry, who represented a literal threat to our security, can demand sensitive documents and get them because they're on the community. They could be looking, you know, they may not be people worthy of being taken seriously, but they're going to have access to national security information. 
This is all no, just I would incredibly... say Andy, Andy... Oops, go ahead. Go ahead. No, sorry. Charles first. Go. I was saying, I was this is all just Andy... very, this incredibly is incredibly dangerous uh, what they're doing and what and what Republicans are doing are what they started to do as soon as Trump was elected. It is the Paul Ryan approach, which is Paul Ryan wrote himself that I didn't want to be the scold. I didn't agree. But I put my head down and I felt like I could be the guardrails and I could keep the machine going. And I did not want to be the scold against Trump. And Republicans keep making the same mistake because but if you if if there's a void and no one's uh, objecting to these people, it sounds like acquiescence. It sounds like approval. The, the nothingness sounds like approval to the rest of the country. And that is the problem that Republicans keep making. So they cannot separate themselves from the Marjorie Taylor Greens. Mr. Rooney. Uh, Charles, I, I agree with you. I suggest they read The Road to Serfdom by Frederick Hayek about what people did when they acquiesced in what was happening both with the Leninists and with the rise of uh, the Nazis in Germany. When you acquiesce, you are committing uh, an evil uh, just as bad as the ringleaders who are leading it along. It's time for yeah. people to stand up. Uh, when you mentioned Santos, I just want to play we, I, a piece of sound here, but the latest on him, this is who is now on the science committee and the small business committee uh, in, uh, in charge of uh, coming up with legislation on those two things. A disabled veteran says that George Santos took $3,000. Um, this guy named Richard Ostoff said that Santos promised to raise funds for a life-saving surgery for his service dog back in 2016 when he was calling by Deval Anthony DeValder. Then he disappeared and took the money. Uh, he was using Anthony DeValder as his name. Uh, NBC News has now spoken with Mr. Ostoff, and this is what he said. I almost threw up. I was— so livid that I realized that this guy is now a serving congressman. He doesn't deserve that job. It's horrendous that he could lie and steal and cheat his way through life. And now he's somebody that we are supposed to trust. It's, it's just disgusting. It's horrible. He should be ashamed of himself, but he doesn't have shame. He does. He's a psychopath. Now, I should note that NBC News has not confirmed any of the details of the story, but they have to speak, spoke with Mr. Ostoff himself. Uh, Francis Rooney, your thoughts on the fact that somebody who is alleged to be this much of a disgrace in basically ripping off a disabled veteran is now on very important congressional committees? Well, I think, first of all, even if you miss one or two of the facts, there's so many facts about this guy that support the argument that he's a crook and a fraud. And the fact that McCarthy seated him is atrocious. And that, to me, uh, undermines our brand as responsible Republicans of the party uh, of opposition, the party that has some slightly different views but can reach across the aisle and solve the problems that the American people need solved. And we can't do that right now with all this kind of people in the government. And these are the people in charge of whether we raise the debt ceiling. I'm sorry, but Kevin McCarthy should simply begin <laughs> answering to the name Reek. Google that and you will understand what I mean. Thank you, Charles Blow and former Congressman Francis Rooney. Up next on The Readout, the dangerous brinksmanship as Republicans threaten to hold the government hostage and simply just refuse to pay America's bills. That's where we're at, everyone. The Readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. 
The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. The U.S. credit rating, Standard & Poor's, a key agency that advises, advises investors on long-term securities, lowered America's credit rating from AAA to AA+. It has never happened before. It's all about how the country will pay for its debt. And S&P pointed the finger at Washington. So in its report, the agency noted the, quote, difficulties in bridging the gulf between the political parties. It also added that it's become pessimistic about Congress and the Obama administration's ability to stabilize the nation's debt problem. In 2011, the United States had its credit rating downgraded for the first time ever, all because Tea Party Republicans threatened to not raise the debt ceiling under President Obama. The parties came to an agreement just before we hit our credit limit, but the damage was done. Now, in case you need a refresher on the debt ceiling, it's the level of debt that Congress authorizes the federal government to take on. Once we reach the point where we can no longer pay our bills, Congress has to lift that ceiling. It's meant to be routine government business. Since 1960, Congress has acted 78 separate times to permanently raise, temporarily extend, or revise the terms of the debt limit, 49 times under Republican presidents and 29 times under Democrats. But in the modern era, it's become increasingly politicized. George W. Bush was able to raise the debt ceiling seven times. But he was met with a democratic, he was met with democratic opposition when they were in the minority and many opposed his seemingly unlimited war and Pentagon spending. A majority of Republicans voted for those increases. So the risk of a default was never a big threat, even when Democrats regained the majority. Those votes against were mostly a message to Democratic voters, a statement of values. It's Republicans who took us to the brink of actual default in 2011 once they gained the House. And Obama was in the White House. Quite frankly, that was about messaging, too, a statement of their values, Tea Party values, a sudden zeal to shrink the government and drown it in a bathtub for some reason. Meanwhile, their favorite president, Donald Trump, was able to raise the debt ceiling twice. He had Democratic support, which allowed those on the far right to vote against the bill once again without the specter of a looming default. In fact, the national debt rose by nearly $7.8 trillion with a T dollars during Trump's time in office due to his tax cuts for the super rich. You are still paying that bill. You're welcome. But now that a Democrat is president again, spending is back to being forbidden. Republicans, including their leadership, are threatening to not allow President Biden to raise the debt ceiling without major spending cuts to programs like Social Security and Medicare, because to hell with the sick and the old people. Am I right? Yeah, the White House is not going to they're not going to allow that. I think it is critical that we change the way we're doing business. And I intend to use the debt ceiling to ensure that we get fiscal and structural reforms. We cannot continue to operate 
with these types of deficits. Our national debt is one of our biggest threats to our national security. We have to refuse to raise the debt ceiling. We have to get spending back under control. And we have to do that by any means possible. And if that means the government shutdown, then I'll be calling for a government shutdown because this government, this government shut our country down with those COVID shutdowns. <laughs> oh, my God. Tomorrow, the government will have to resort to extraordinary measures to continue paying its bills. But time's up in June when Congress will need to act. If they don't, we go into default, which could lead to a whole world of hurt, including a possible stock market crash or a recession, higher interest rates, a weaker dollar, another credit downgrade, and a 4% decline in GDP. Oh, and up to 6 million job losses. Yay, mega. Joining me now is Democratic Congressman Ro Khanna of California and Robert Reich, Secretary of Labor in the Clinton administration and Professor of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. I want to thank both of you for being here. And I do want to start with you, Congressman, because, you know, the non-routineness of raising the debt limit is, is a purely political thing, you know. And I can recall Democrats who opposed seemingly unlimited Pentagon and Iraq war spending making a statement by opposing the increase of the debt limit. I think when he was a senator, Senator Obama uh, did that. But they did that knowing that they were not the votes that were going to cause the debt limit to be overreached. So it was a statement. It was not an attack on our economy. This is different because you hear these Republicans saying we've got to get our spending back under control, but they didn't have a problem with racking up $7.8 trillion under Trump. Your thoughts? Julie, you're absolutely right. They did it as a statement to remind the American people that President Clinton, under whose administration Secretary Reich served, left this country with budget surpluses. Then what happened? President Bush went into Iraq. President Bush had these massive tax cuts for the wealthy. President Bush caused a financial crisis that led to spending to recover from that. And Trump gave a massive tax cut. So to have the Republicans who have caused this debt Lecture us about the debt is the height of hypocrisy. And all we're saying is pay the past bills because you've racked them up. We're not going to default on the debt you've incurred. And let's debate future spending. Yeah, I mean, I'm just, our, our wonderful colleague, Stephanie Rule, has basically likened it to a credit card. You know, you run up the credit card bill and then at the end of the month, you're like, I am not paying that. I refuse to pay those bills. No, that's not how it works. And Robert Reich, it's it's that's the point that I think bugs me the most. The first time I, you know, I'm not going to age myself, but I was in high school when Ronald Reagan was president. And the, 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 the huge deficits he ran up were because of the thing Republicans love to do. Lots of tax cuts for the super rich. Clinton cleans that up. Then they come back and do more tax cuts for the super rich and they and more huge defense spending. They keep cutting the super rich's taxes and then saying, we've got to get the budget under control. Your thoughts? Well, that's happened again and again and again, Joy. You're absolutely right. Uh, and I remember in the Clinton administration, it was almost as if we had a giant pooper scooper uh, and we had to go around and clean up the mess created by Reagan and the first Bush administration. And then we cleaned it up. And what happened? The next Bush administration created an even bigger mess. Uh, and as you pointed out, Donald Trump spent $7.8 trillion, increased the, the national debt by $7.8 trillion, uh, and raised, raised the debt ceiling. I mean, there was no problem raising debt ceiling when Republicans have the power uh, and Republicans are in the White House. Yes, the Republicans uh, will raise the debt ceiling. But suddenly, the deficit 
becomes a big deal uh, when Democrats have the White House and the deficit uh, not only becomes a big deal, but there are threats to not raise the debt ceiling and thereby hold hostage the full faith and credit of the United States, stiffing essentially all our creditors. And Congressman, you know, it's it's also a matter of who is demanding this. These Tea Party Republicans have it in for Social Security and Medicare. And the cuts they're demanding are to anything that helps the old or the poor. They want to cut food stamps. They want to cut uh, meals on wheels. They want to cut Social Security and Medicare that people have paid their tax money into. They never say they want to do these cuts to cut anything that helps anybody rich. They just want to hurt poor people and old people. And they're demanding that President Biden somehow be willing to sign a bill to do that. So they're coming from a position of weakness because they know their case is so unpopular with the American people. They don't have the skill to be able to defend it and make a case legitimately. The only way they can do it is to threaten to hijack and bankrupt the American economy. And there's a clear contrast. Look, the Democrats under John Larson, we want to increase Social Security benefits. We want we don't want Social Security benefits for the working class to be taxed. We are for helping people in the working and middle class. And they know that's a winning argument. We don't have to threaten to hijack and bankrupt the American economy. They do because they can't win the political argument. You know, Robert Reich, the thing I think that people also forget, too, there's a reason that the United States has a triple A credit rating. The United States it, you, debt, American debt is is it's a safe investment. Right. And so they're making it sound as if if they don't stop us from going over the debt limit, if they don't let us go over the debt limit, that somehow that's that is hurting the United States economically when it's not. The United States can't afford to run these deficits. It's just they want to run them for only one reason, to cut rich people's taxes. Exactly. I mean, this is very, very important and very central. They continually have tax cuts for the rich. They continually want to cut the safety nets that everybody relies on, particularly Social Security and Medicare. They've been threatening this uh, from the beginning. In fact, from 1935, they were against Social Security. And from 1965, they've been against Medicare. And what is the vehicle they use? As the congressman said, they don't want to do it directly. They right. want to know they they're, they're, they know these populars are enormous. These programs are enormously popular. So what will they do? They'll use this debt ceiling. It sounds to the public as well, of course, you need to have a debt ceiling. Actually, what they are doing is creating huge potential problems for everybody because they will ultimately only raise the debt ceiling if they get their way. And what does that mean? What does that mean? It means cuts in programs that everybody counts on, or it means that we are our credit is downgraded and we have to pay billions more uh, to borrow more money. I mean, this is this is insane. There should be no yeah. negotiating at all with hostage takers. Yeah, there's a reason that we have a saying in the United States, we don't negotiate with terrorists. This is economic terrorism, putting a gun to the head of the American economy in order to try to sock it to the poor and the elderly. It's well, it's unchristian, I'm going to say. I'll put it that way. Uh, and they claim to be the defenders of the faith. Uh, Congressman Ro Khanna and Robert Reich, thank you both very much. Still ahead, disturbing accounts of children, even toddlers, toddlers, wielding handguns. As many folks asking, how can this happen? Well, it's not complicated, folks. It all comes down to one political party's infatuation with guns. We'll be right back.
Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25. Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at msnbc.com. Just days into the new year, police in Newport News, Virginia, said a six-year-old boy intentionally shot his teacher when he opened fire in his elementary school classroom. Parents expressed their rage and terror at a school board meeting last night. I send my kids to school and find myself praying to God that they will return home safely. This may not be a daily worry for you, but my children and I are terrified. She's six. (laughs) She's terrified. Because the person that was advocating for her got hurt. She got hurt. News of a six-year-old shooter elicited a horror that many are still grappling with. But less than two weeks later, it's already feeling less like a solitary incident. In Indiana, video has surfaced of a toddler, a literal baby, roaming an apartment hallway with a loaded gun. And then today, authorities announced that a 13-year-old brought a loaded gun to his Grand Rapids Middle School. How does a child have a gun, have access to it? How do they know it can intimidate, cause harm? Well, those questions are partially answered by the fact that some guns are manufactured for children. This is the JR-15, a semi-automatic AR-15 assault-style rifle designed for kids smaller than the full-sized weapon of war, and lighter at two and a half pounds. And yet we wonder, how in America could a child be the shooter? Joining me now is Josh Sugarman, Executive Director of the Violence Policy Center. Uh, Mr. Sugarman, thank you so much for being here. Talk to me about this gun. It's a JR-15. It's marketed to little kids. Uh, Why? And and who's the the target audience? The big picture. Go ahead. Go on. Sorry. The big picture is that the, the big industry. Yeah, the big picture is that the gun industry is facing a crisis, and in fact, the primary market of white males is saturated. So they're following a trail blazed by the tobacco industry, looking at women, communities of color, and children. Now, the JR15 came out last year. 
at the SHOT Show, which is the big gun industry trade show, kind of like a car show, but it's guns and the public isn't allowed to go to it. And at that time, they marketed the gun with uh, cartoons of children's skulls, where the uh, company claimed that this well, they wanted an edgy product that created a wow factor with the kids. Now, after this, not only was there widespread revulsion across the country, but states like California banned the marketing of gun to kids. And uh, senators wrote a letter to the FTC demanding that they look into this issue. Now, uh, We One Tactical, which makes the JR-15, is back. And it's a kinder, gentler marketing campaign because what they did, they realized they made a mistake when they said the loud part. Sorry, they said the quiet part out loud. And so what you're finding is, yes, there are guns marketed specifically to children in this country. It is really despicable. Um, But the thing is, is that, you know, as you said, they're trying to broaden their market beyond white males. But the people who are pushing the idea of kids with guns are Republicans. Uh, Let me just show you a couple of things. This is Republican members. This is Thomas Massey of Kentucky and Lauren Boebert of Colorado. These are their Christmas card photos. So the idea of kids, including little kids, having guns is being normalized outside the gun industry by members of Congress who are essentially saying, hey, my family's armed to the teeth down to the toddlers. So do you think that environment is contributing to the idea that the gun industry has that they ought to sell directly uh, guns directly to kids? It's almost a chicken and egg question. What the gun industry is trying to do and what those foes represent from the political side are trying to normalize a kid's gun culture. And it takes many forms. And I think what you're also finding is the fact that when you put guns into kids' hands, we see the result, whether it's the fact that uh, guns have now outpaced motor vehicle deaths as leading cause of uh, children and teens, whether you see the, the uh, incidents that you focus with on your show. But I think what in the end is the fact that we have to look upstream at the gun industry, how they're marking these guns, how they're targeting children, and this is nothing new, and what we as parents as Americans, as advocates can do to stop this. You know, and the thing is, is that you have this situation where parents in lots of states are scared to send their kids to school, as we saw in Virginia, which is a very open gun heavy state, um, or in places like Texas, where Uvalde happened, or really anywhere in the country, Colorado, you just, you name it. And the response of people like a Marjorie Taylor Greene is, oh, these kids in school should have a JR-15. If all the kids were walking around with assault weapons, then that they'd be safer. So there's that aspect of it. And then the school's reaction to all of these real-life shootings and, you know, the reasons that the kids are afraid is to say, well, the kids need to come through a metal detector. They need to have a clear backpack. We need to put a panic button in the room. Um, we need to put in the classroom. We need to arm the teachers. Like, it feels like the public policy response is to just find ways to make it easier for the gun and the kids to live in the same space rather than to react to what you're talking about, the industry marketing to them. That's completely correct. What we're doing is we're laying the responsibility on the potential victims of gun violence and telling them basically to look out for themselves to even the most grotesque example of that, where, as you said, Margie Taylor Greene said, we need to give children their own pint-sized assault rifles to fight off the adult armed with a full-size AR-15. 
And I think it's an important issue to add that the marketing of guns to kids and bring kids into the gun culture has two uh, goals. One is to increase profits for the gun industry, but also to create an avenue for political foot soldiers for the gun control battles that lie ahead. Basically, idea that the NRA is involved in this because they want people to fight against uh, potential gun violence prevention measures, as does the gun industry. It's it's ironic. You have people like um, Tucker's, uh, Tucker Carlson over on Fox News, you know, accusing people like Tiffany Cross of doing Hutu radio, uh, when at the same time, he and his fellow travelers are trying to create the, the child soldiers and to have our children walking around looking like child sol- soldiers in a country at war. They'd rather have that than safety for fourth graders and little kids and six-year-olds. It's, it's, it's a bizarre world we live in. Josh Sugarman, thank you very much. Up next, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis loves the COVID vaccines. No, wait, wait, he hates COVID vaccines. Whoops, sorry, I'm getting an update here. He loves vaccines. Oh, stand by, stand by. He hates them again. More next. It was a monumental day for the state of Maryland as Democrat Wes Moore was sworn in as the state's first black governor and the third black governor ever elected in the United States post-Reconstruction. Moore took the oath of office on a Bible that once belonged to Frederick Douglass. And after the ceremony, he was introduced by none other than Oprah Winfrey to deliver his first remarks as the state's leader. This journey has never been about making history. It's about marching forward. Today is not an indictment of the past. Today is a celebration of our collective future. And today, our opportunity to begin this future is so bright, it is blinding. But only if we are intentional, inclusive, and disciplined in confronting challenges making hard choices, and seizing this opportunity in front of us. Moore's inaugural statement drew quite the contrast to that of another governor who was sworn in earlier this month. We reject this woke ideology. We seek normalcy, not philosophical lunacy. We will not allow reality, facts, and truth to become optional. We will never surrender to the woke mob. Florida is where woke goes to die. Ah, yes, a surprise to absolutely no one. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis used his inaugural address to peddle his usual attack against anything he deems to be woke, like books and black history and movies with gay characters in them and companies that have policies against discrimination. The new reporting today from The Washington Post says that some of those woke companies, the same, the same ones that DeSantis has built his entire brand on attacking, actually helped pay for his inauguration. The Post reports that DeSantis's inauguration co-chairs, a.k.a. the people who brought in the most money, included four of Florida's most prominent lobbyists, and their clients are some of the governor's favorite corporate punching bags. That includes Disney, you know, the entertainment giant that was stripped of its special status for speaking out against the don't say gay bill, along with BlackRock, which DeSantis attacked after they advocated for climate change. Also on that list, the Tampa Bay Rays baseball team, who lost state funding in June after calling for gun control following the mass shootings in Buffalo and Duvalde, and PayPal, 
who DeSantis went after last year for cutting off the accounts of far-right groups who were charged in the January 6th Capitol attack, like the Proud Boys. And the list goes on and on. So I guess those woke companies aren't so bad, as long as their lobbyists keep giving boss DeSantis money, right? But what the Washington Post also points out is that last month, the Florida Republican Party received $25,000 from Walgreens, which appeared as an inauguration sponsor alongside CBS Health, both of which have faced DeSantis's wrath over COVID vaccines, the same vaccines the governor is currently spreading dangerous lies about. More on that after the break. My message is the vaccines protect you, get vaccinated, and then live your life as if you're protected. The best thing you can do if you haven't uh, gotten the vaccine, particularly if you're somebody who's older, particularly if you have any health problems, is to, is to, is to get a shot. If you look at the people that are being admitted to hospitals, uh, over 95% of them are either not fully vaccinated or not vaccinated at all. And so these vaccines are saving lives. They are reducing mortality. That was Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who once called his state God's waiting room back in his first term, touting the importance of vaccines. Flash forward to this month as he begins his second term, and DeSantis has become the poster child for COVID denialism, hoping to ride that pony all the way to the White House. Almost every study now has said with these new boosters, you're more likely to get infected with the bivalent booster. Shortly after pushing that unfounded claim, he announced his plan to permanently ban mask mandates, COVID-19 vaccine mandates in schools, and COVID-19 vaccine requirements for employment. Last week, he got the Florida Supreme Court to impanel a grand jury to investigate any, quote, wrongdoing with respect to the COVID-19 vaccines. The grand jury investigation is so broad that they basically want to harass anybody who had anything to do with the development, design, testing, and manufacturing of COVID vaccines. Joining me now is Dr. Kavita Patel, clinical physician, former senior policy director in the Obama administration, and an MSNBC contributor. Uh, thank you for being here, Dr. Patel. And, you know, I remember actually reaching out to you early on when the vaccines came out and just asking, just tell me, are they safe? Which is the safer one? What are better? And I think a lot of people had those concerns. But you heard Governor DeSantis in the beginning, in the most elderly state in the union, saying, no, no, get vaccinated. Now, politically, he's decided he's so anti-vax that they're going to have a grand jury. He's put in place a attorney general, I mean, a surgeon general, who has talked about basically conspiracy theories. He's a conspiracy theorist against the vaccines and wouldn't even wear a mask in front of somebody with cancer. Talk about what that does to people who had a little skepticism. Oh, Joy, it's actually spreading skepticism more than the virus is doing a, a job of infecting people. That's what's alarming to me. I think the kind of two points is that, number one, not only has it gone 180, but he's taken it to another level. So he's not citing science. He's not citing any evidence because all the evidence points to the fact that vaccines save lives. And he's extending it now even into jurisdictions being able to decide if they need masks. We know that, especially with this variant, XBB 1.5, one of the most infectious variants, it has the chance to escape immunity if you're not up to date on vaccines or if 
you're older, and I don't mean old, I just mean you might be older, we're talking over 40, which mm-hmm. many of us, myself included, are, and also children who are vulnerable because they don't have mature lungs, don't have mature immune systems. So he's outright just denying the evidence and denying people to be able to do what I think is an American right to be able to actually say, in my community, we'll look at the COVID levels. We think that we need to put masks or other protections in place. And they're using this word mandate as if it's a divisive term. And they're not explaining the science that supports it. And then also the fact that we've evolved. This isn't the mandate of March of 2020. Right. We have tests. We have vaccines. We have treatments. All of that is getting shoved aside while he's gaslighting health professionals from being able to have a conversation with their patients. Right. And the the thing thing is that that now, obviously DeSantis wants to turn Florida into the paradise for anti-vaxxers and anti-maskers because Mm -hmm. he thinks that's going to help him politically. That's very clear. But what's happening is, I mean, even I think you might know people who do this too. Whenever you have a celebrity death, Damar Hamlin's collapse, um, people start saying, hey, I wonder if he was vaccinated, if that's what caused it. You have only a few minutes anti-vaxxers to start. It only took a few minutes for anti-vaxxers to start spreading lies about Lisa Marie Presley and conspiracy Mm -hmm. theories. Anytime a celebrity or someone prominent passes, then if they were vaccinated, people start saying it's the vaccines that are killing people. And then you have people, and I know some, who start thinking, wait a minute, maybe it's the vaccines, not COVID. Right. And, and, And they don't look at the data to show that there are these side effects that get reported in these public systems. You can look them up right now and you might see all sorts of side effects. But then we have to use controlled trials and look at the data to see the benefits. Every time we go into anything in medicine, vaccines included, we have risks and benefits. We're always trying to outweigh the make sure the benefits outweigh the risks. In this case, I've never seen, Joy, let me just say, I have never seen in my life, and I've been practicing for a while, I've never seen such a preponderance of evidence. We're talking billions of people who have gotten vaccines around the world to give us this real world evidence. In fact, many of the things I do in the hospital and clinic don't ever, ever get to that number level. So what we're fighting are people who want to spread disinformation, who have a lot more time on their hands to not actually pay attention to the health of their communities. Uh, The whole time this is happening with DeSantis and his Surgeon General, I'm sitting there seeing patients thinking, what about what is it that's not getting through? Why are you reflecting the messages that are not being seen by everyday people? People are suffering. People are not suffering because of vaccines. People are suffering because people like Governor DeSantis has more time on his hands to spread these lies and to find the doctors yeah. who have time on their hands to spread and these he's, lies. And this, you know, grand jury is now free to spend a year yes. dragging, you know, people like, you know, Dr. Fauci and right. dragging people in front of them. Many of them are people of color who right. developed these vaccines, Dr. Kizik right. Orbe, right. dragging them into Florida and making them be interrogated right. because he thinks that'll help him get elected president of the United States. It's pretty sickening and sick. It's tragic. It's resulting in deaths. And that's yeah. not an overstatement. And by the way, uh, we now have data that shows that Republicans are dying at disproportionate levels to Democrats. Yeah. And there's a reason for that. Dr. Kavita Patel, thank you. thank you as always. And that is tonight's readout. Why are smart businesses graduating to NetSuite by Oracle? Because NetSuite eliminates the expense of multiple business systems by consolidating your operations together into one. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. NetSuite reduces IT costs because it lives in the cloud with no hardware required, so you can access it from anywhere. 
You cut the cost and headaches of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. Bringing all your major business processes into one platform improves efficiency, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. You'll see how you'll profit with NetSuite, too. And now, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Just go to netsuite.com slash podcast25 for more information. That's netsuite.com slash podcast25.